All right, so you've never seen this before, but you can go tell everybody when they say, what happened at church today? You can tell them the preacher actually aired his dirty laundry. Here it is right here. I just took it right out of my closet this morning and brought it to church. I'm going to set that right there. And that's all of it, too. Don't look too closely. And then here, I got the clean clothes that I got from the cleaners. Here, we'll give, we'll give Starbright a plug. I don't know if they're here or not. So I just want to kind of talk today about something I read when I was looking at Warren Wiersbe's commentary. He said that we've got a choice every day what we're going to wear. We can wear the grave clothes, the dirty clothes that need to be cast off, or we can wear the grace clothes. And so let those, uh, my dirty laundry and my clean laundry represent those today. Thank you. Remember last week we talked about seeking and setting our minds on the things above. And this is what we learned in our sermon last week. That when our identity is in Christ, the things of earth will be things that I have, not things that have me. For the believer, the old self derived its identity from the things of earth. We called those the things of earth, and I called those the pulled pork sandwich, right? And then when we trust in Jesus, what we're saying is, I'm putting off this old way of being. I'm putting off the dirty clothes. I'm putting off the grave clothes of the dead man. And I'm putting on a new way of being. I'm finding my identity in Christ, the things above, his rule, his reign. We call that the brisket. And I'm putting on a new self, and I'm being renewed in, not in knowledge after the image of my Creator. So let's start today by all asking ourselves this question. I want you to ask yourself this question. And you come to church and you say, well, what's the point of coming to church? Well, today the point of, the, of coming to church is I want you to answer this question. Am I growing in Christ? Am I growing in Christ? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the answer is no. The way that you start growing in Christ is to put your faith and trust in him. That he died for you on the cross, that he took the penalty for your sin, that he's willing to forgive your sins and give you his righteousness if you trust him, if you believe in his name. And if you believe in his name and you believe in what he's done, that he died for you, he was buried for three days, and he rose again for you, if you put your faith and trust that he did that to secure your salvation, then you can be saved and you can begin to grow in Christ. But many of us put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ some years ago, some decades ago. You've been Christian for decades. Are you growing in Christ? Do you ever think about growing in Christ? Is one of the things that you desire to do to grow in Christ? How exactly do I focus on the things above and put to death the earthly things in me? That answer to that question, or when we answer that question, we begin to grow in Christ. What would you expect the Bible to say about how to grow in Christ? If you go to other religions and you say, how do I become uh, 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 one with my creator? How do I uh, reach a divine state? 
other religions or you might expect Christianity might say to you, well, if you want to grow in Christ, read a bunch of books or meditate or don't eat certain foods or, don't, or, 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 or participate in certain rituals. But that's not what the Bible says at all. Could it be good to read books and meditate and pray? Yes, those are all wonderful things. And they might lead you to growing in Christ. But I love the way that when you go to the Bible and say, what does growth in Christ look like? It's so practical. It's so simple. Paul says that growing in Christ is a lot like wearing clothes. And I like that illustration or that metaphor. Here's why I like the clothes putting on and putting off metaphor, illustration. is because every single one of us does that every single day. I mean, there can't be a more ordinary thing in life than putting on clothes, taking off clothes, putting on clothes. I mean, clothes, I'm sure for some of you guys, like when I think of the Branham household, and I just think about how many clothes there are in your house, right? Am I right? Clothes is a big deal. With the, all the kids are shaking their heads. I mean, we, we have a bunch of people living at our house, and none of them seem to want to pick their clothes up off the floor. And so uh, there's clothes everywhere. Clothes are just a part of life. So we get the idea of putting on clothes and, and taking off clothes and having dirty clothes and needing clean clothes. And when we think about clothes, our minds can actually be drawn to Christ. They can be drawn to the story of Easter. Do you remember what was laying in the empty tomb when the disciples arrived? The grave clothes of Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly what Jesus was wearing when he walked out of the tomb, but it was something new because nobody recognized him. And it's the same for us. The Bible tells us that when we are saved, the old man is put off and we become a new self. We put on a new self. And that new self just might be unrecognizable. That's what salvation is like. It's a radical change. Maybe Paul, when he wrote these words about putting off and putting on, Maybe he was thinking about Jesus, but he may have been thinking about a vision that the prophet Zechariah had in Zechariah chapter 3, where there's an emphasis on clothing. Listen as I read Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 to you. Zechariah is given a vision. He says, he was shown Joshua the high priest, and the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And he was saying, the priest is unclean. The priest isn't worthy to be a priest because of his sin. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, is Jerusalem not a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua, this high priest, is standing there before the angel And he's clothed, the Bible says, in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So we have that picture in the Bible of the the filthy garments being taken off the impurity being taken away, the iniquity being taken away and being clothed with pure vestments to be forgiven and clean. When you are forgiven in Jesus Christ, the dirty clothes of sin are removed 
And we are clothed with the purity and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you can't make those grace clothes yourself. You can't clean them yourself. The first putting on and putting off has to be something God does. You can't earn your salvation. You can't clean yourself up to be acceptable to God. And so we understand that. That there is a work of of forgiveness that only God can do. A taking off of what is dirty, a removal of your sin that only God can do, and a giving you of righteousness that only God can do. But what we learn in our passage as we look at verse 12, and we could say that 1 through 11 kind of speaks of that first clothing, that first robing, so to speak. And when we look at verse 12, what we learn is that there's more in the closet. There's more in the closet. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Now this is a command. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So think about that. What are we to put on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But first, let's look at who is supposed to wear these clothes. Look how we're described in verse 12. If you're a believer, this is how you are described in the Bible. You are chosen by God. You are holy. And you are loved. Have you ever been chosen for something? I can remember one of the first times I was chosen for something. We had a Christmas pageant when I was in kindergarten. And I was chosen to be Joseph. And that was about the greatest thing up until that point in my five-year-old life that had ever happened to me. I could not believe that of all the classes, of all the kindergartners, everybody else was going to be standing on those little risers that they used to make you stand on in children's programs. Except for a girl and me and a few other kids dressed like animals. But I got to be the man. I got to be Joseph. That meant I got to stand there with a stick and a robe and something over my head. I was chosen, and it was a big deal to me. I think I rode being chosen to be Joseph as far as giving me confidence. I bet I rode that all the way into junior high before reality set in. (laughs) And I don't know why Miss Humphrey chose me for that part. I suspect it was because... I was the only one who raised my hand when she asked if anybody had a bathrobe. We'll get that on the way home. But but in my mind, I had been chosen for this very special part in a play about Jesus. And I loved Jesus. And I remember that being chosen uh, made me feel very honored. And it made me feel, feel very humbled. And when the Bible talks to us about our salvation, it speaks to us about this mysterious choice that God made to save us. We don't understand it because we're creatures of earth. This is something, this choosing happened before the world was created. But God chose those who would be his own. He set us apart. That's what holy means. He separated us. And then he set his love on us. Not because we were smarter or because we were better, but simply because he had his heart set on us 
to be His children. That's a reality. That's what it means when it says you're chosen. Now, I can't explain to you, because half of y'all are thinking that's wonderful, and the other half of you are saying, well, what about free will? Because that's how it always works. You bring up one, and someone else brings up the other one. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon one time, they said, well, how do you reconcile predestination and free will? He said, I don't reconcile friends. Okay, these things go together. They're both in the Bible. Many times you'll find them right next door to each other in the Bible in the same verse. And I can't explain to you how the choosing and the free will work together, but I believe in both. And the Bible doesn't explain how they work together either. The Bible does speak of us being required to place our faith in Christ to be saved. That's something that has to be done and chosen by us as an act of our will. Nobody can choose Christ for you. So both are true. And we understand that coming to Christ in repentance and faith are absolutely crucial. But we also understand that the whole process is one governed by the grace of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. I'm completely astounded that God would choose Chad Edgington. Maybe in kindergarten I would have told you, yes, I should be Joseph. I'm a good boy. I listen to the teacher. I keep my mouth shut. I do my work. Maybe when I was five, I thought I was a good person. But the longer I've lived, I can tell you that the fact that God loves me and that he would choose me to be his child is incomprehensible. Because now, after 48 years, I know what I am. I know I'm not worthy of such a choice. I know I'm a sinner. I cannot live one day of 100% faithfulness to him. There's no reason for him to choose me. There's no reason for him to make me holy. There's no reason for him to love me. Because most of my life is probably spent in open rebellion against him. Even though that is not my desire. Maybe you feel like me. You feel the same way and so we're left sort of asking that musical question posed by Chris Christofferson. You ever thought about Chris Christofferson's name? His name actually means son of Christ. And he wrote the song, Why Me, Lord? I think we ask that question, Why Me, Lord? What have I done to deserve even one of the pleasures you give? When we know what we are. The passage is an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. And the Lord is explaining to the nation of Israel why he's redeemed them from Egypt. Because they could ask the same question. Why us, Lord? Why would you take us, a bunch of slaves down here in Egypt, why would you take us out of Egypt and make us a great nation? Why would you do this? Why us? We're just a bunch of shepherds. We're the lowest people on the totem pole. Why would you choose us? And the Lord said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, as Moses was repeating to them the law, as he was explaining to the generation that was going to go into the Canaan land and and pursue the conquest of that land so many years ago, he said, you are a people, listen for the echoes of our passage, in our passage today, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are holy. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his segula, his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and keeps steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We have an echo of that in our passage, don't we? As we're told right there at the beginning in verse 12 that we are chosen, we are holy, and we are loved. Just as Israel was told, as God was explaining to them, it wasn't because you were so great, but it was because of who I am. What can we say? Great is my sin, but great is thy faithfulness. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Take off the grave clothes and put on these the grace clothes, as Wearsby said. The one who's been forgiven much, the one who's received grace he did not earn or even take the initiative to get, can approach anyone wearing a suit of compassion, humility. I missed one, didn't I? Compassion, kindness, <laughs> humility, meekness, and patience. Let's look at these. Compassionate heart. Maybe a better translation would be uh, found in your, in your King James Bible where it says bowels of mercy or bowels of tenderness or bowels of compassion. How do we normally act when someone upsets us? How do we normally act towards that one that annoys us? Do we tend to wear these clothes? When we deal with them, or do we wear these clothes? Do we have compassionate hearts? Do we address people with humility, or do we think, I don't have to have time for this person. This person's not important. I don't have to deal with them. Humility is not a word that the Greeks used to ever describe themselves. It wasn't a positive word. They didn't think it was a good thing for a person to be humble. And yet, what did Paul say about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8? And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was beneath the Greek-speaking people to put on humility. But those in Christ are to emulate Christ, and we are to put on humility, just as Jesus did. How humble was Jesus? He was humble all the way to the cross for us. Kindness. I, I skipped over kindness. I think we all understand what kindness is. David looked around one day, and he said, How can I show kindness to the house of Saul? Did David need to show Kindness to the house of Saul? No. But he, who did he want to be kind towards? Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And what did he do with Mephibosheth? He didn't have to do this. He was just a cripple that no one was paying any attention to. But he brought him in and he sat him at the king's table. And he treated the lowest one like royalty. Do we do that with people that we come across? Do we show compassion of heart? Do we show kindness? Do we show humility? What about meekness? What is meekness? Well, it's not weakness, but meekness is strength under control. Sort of the picture of a giant NFL lineman holding a tiny baby. Strength under control. It's a man who's so powerful, he could do anything. He's, he's one of the strongest people on the earth, but here he is tenderly holding this baby. That's how we can, you can deal with people in lots of ways. But do you deal with people with that type of meekness and gentleness? And finally, patience. We count people out. We give up on them. We don't have patience. 
We don't want to listen to what they have to say. We get frustrated. But God is not like that. And he calls us to be like him. What does patience look like? Look at verse 13. Patience looks like bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Think about these spiritual clothes we're called to put on. All of them are choices we make. Every single one of these clothes that you've been told to put on is a choice you make. You choose in the moment. I can be compassionate or I can be hardened. I can be humble and I can empty myself and give this person some time or I can be full of myself and refuse to give it away. I can be meek or I can be prideful. I can be patient or I can be impatient. I decide, am I going to go over here and get something to wear? And am I going to wear those things or am I going to wear these things? It's a choice you make. You have to decide to do it. When you were small, your mom used to lay your clothes out for you. She would lay out what you were to wear. But you got to a certain age, and you got to decide what you wanted to wear. And when it was time to go school shopping, you would go school shopping with your mom. And you would go into the dressing room, and you would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to take these clothes. We're going to go into the dressing room. I get the little number. We go in here. And you, you, would, you, you would hang your clothes on the rack. Did you just stand there and expect the clothes to pop onto you? Did you expect the clothes to dress themselves on you? No. You had to deliberately put the clothes on. Paul's using this illustration. He's saying, you've got to put these things on. That means you've got to decide for yourself. Am I going to be compassionate? Am I going to be kind? Am I going to be humble? Am I going to be meek? Am I going to be patient? And that's how these commands work. They're present imperative commands in the language, in the grammar. What that means is that you put them on and you keep putting them on every single day. It's a lifestyle of obedience. It would be really easy to be compassionate and and kind and humble and meek and patient if you never saw anybody else, wouldn't it? You'd be perfect. You'd be, I'm perfectly patient with everybody I meet because I never meet anybody. That's not how it works, is it? And verse 13 really brings that out. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, be forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive And he's talking about others. You don't forgive nobody. You forgive another person that's upset you, that's offended you. This is one of the passages in the Bible that reminds us why the church is so crucial. Because you can't live the Christian life and you can't obey the Scripture if you're not in a church. Because you have to gather with the one another's. CJ and I went through one time and pulled out all the one another's in the whole New Testament. And it's a whole page in 10-point font. It's a whole page of commands of how we are to love each other. I read an article this week in The Atlantic by Jake Metter. He says of our culture, he says, Contemporary America is simply not set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. We have a culture that is set up to not love each other. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. Because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. How about that? 
The title of his article is Why Millions of People Are Leaving the Church. And he says, oh, you might think that they got offended or that their views changed or all that. He says, no, the culture in which we live is not set up for people to be involved in a church anymore. The culture's changed. The desires that people have have changed. And so being involved in a church and doing all the things that the world expects you to do, you can't do both. It's a math problem, he says, that doesn't add up. So the hard part is that we're all busy, we're all tired, we're all run down, we all think we don't have time for another, but the truth is we can't live the Christian life without each other. And does God know what we need? So he knows what we need. The reason God has told us to to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together is because we need each other. He's not just telling you things to see if he can make you busy. He's telling you to do these things because he knows what will make us thrive. He knows how we'll grow. He knows what we need to not just have successful spiritual lives, but to have successful lives, period. Did you know that people, when they do these studies and they say, what leads to a long life and happiness and avoidance of these kind of problems and all this, when they, when they look at the happiest people in the world, they tend to say the people that are involved in a religious community are the happiest, most well-balanced, people, healthiest, and live longer than any other people that there are. Why is that? Well, God knows what we need. He knows that we need and we function and we thrive on community. The reason that is is that you're created in the image of God. What is God like? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, His very existence, His very being is a community. And so that, because we're created in the image of God, that's how we thrive. We're made to be in community. What can churches do, Metter says, in such a context? He says, in theory, the Christian church should be an antidote to all that, to what's in the culture. What is more needed in our time than a community marked by sincere love, sharing what they have from each other according to their ability, and and, and treating each other according to their needs, eating together regularly, generously serving their neighbors, living lives of quiet virtue and prayer. A healthy church can be a safety net in the harsh American economy by offering its members material assistance in times of need, Meals after a baby is born, money for rent after a layoff. Perhaps most important, it reminds people that their identity is not in their job or how much money they make, but their identity is that they are children of God, loved, protected, and infinitely valuable. That's why we come to church, isn't it? That's what we learn when we make it to church. So we are called to live in radical community. We are called to live in radical ways. To treat each other with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Are these the clothes you're wearing? Because I asked you at the very beginning of the sermon, are you growing, gotta stay here, are you growing in Christ? Remember, I asked you that at the very beginning, are you growing in Christ? What would growth in Christ look like? What would growth in Christ look like? Was Christ compassionate? Is Christ kind? Is he humble? Is he meek? Is he patient? Yes. See, growing in Christ would would be these characteristics being what you choose to put on every day as opposed to these. Not so that you will be saved or be acceptable to God, but because your desires have changed. What do you really want to put on every day? What is your desire? Here's the miracle. Remember, the miracle is... That I know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't want to wear the dirty clothes anymore. 
you want to wear these. And these, these are great clothes, right? They're so clean that they haven't even been taken out of the, the package, the plastic wrap. I thought that's a great illustration of how pure and righteous and lovely the things that Christ has for us really are. He knows that if we will live this way, if I will wake up in the morning and choose to put on the grace clothes, is it going to be easy? No. But is it going to lead me to have a life of joy and peace and uh, of worship and and a a way to have an impact on the people around me? Yes. Is it going to lead me to more Christ-likeness? Yes. Because I'm actually choosing what I really want. See, so often we have what we really want, and then we stop and we choose in the end to do what we don't really want to do. And then how do we feel afterward? Regret. We feel regretful. We feel remorseful. Because we know what we wanted to do, and we chose opposite of what we wanted to do because we thought, this is familiar. This will bring me temporary pleasure. This will give me what I want now. And then when it's over, you realize... That looked so good, but it was a a well with no water. It was a a cloud with no rain. It didn't lead me where I really wanted to go. But have you ever felt remorse when you've been obedient? I think this is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true. If you will do what the Bible says, if you will live this week seeking to put on the grace clothes and seeking to put off the grave clothes, the dirty clothes, the impurities, if you will live that way, Again, not to earn your salvation, not to make yourself more acceptable to God, but just to be obedient to your creator who loved you because that's what you want to do because he saved you. You understand the distinction I'm making. Then at the end of that, whenever we choose to be obedient, we're never sorry we did it. Now, there's a lot of things the Bible tells us to do. There's a way the Bible teaches us to live. And it does seem many times counterintuitive to the way the world would tell you to live. It doesn't seem to the world like that's the wise way to live. And yet, whenever we live according to the scripture and what the scripture tells us to do, we always walk away from that satisfied. Even if people abandon us, even if people heap abuse on us, even if we suffer for Christ, we're still glad we obeyed because we know it was the right thing to do. It's one of the most amazing things about scripture is that it's right about the way to live. It's a a way to live that is regret-free. And if the Bible's right in these areas, then my argument is the Bible's right in all the areas. So if I've got a book that's never wrong when it tells me how to live, when I come to the hard stuff like it tells me that this man was buried and three days later he woke out of the, uh, rose and and walked out of the grave, that's harder to, to, to believe because I'm not experiencing that and I didn't see it. But if it's right all the time, then it's right all the time. Okay? Are we bearing with one another? Are we forgiving one another? Are we remembering our place as those who have been forgiven and forgiving other people? Are we sitting in judgment? I think one of the things that happens as we begin to look more and more like Christ is we become more, full of, more, more graceful. And less willing to point the finger at other people. Are we cultivating that heart of Christ that will be revealed in these characteristics? 
especially those characteristics that are brought out in verse 13 that have to do with our relationships with other people. And then finally, there's one more thing in the closet. And y'all know I love belts. I say a man's outfit's not complete unless he's got his belt on, and we see that this is biblical. And (laughs) verse 14, and above all these, put on love. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, what is the belt called? Truth, right? And here the belt's called love. We're called in Ephesians to speak the truth in love. So it's interesting that we always have one and the other. We say, well, you just need to tell that guy the truth. But we know that we have to tell the truth in love. And whenever we say, oh, I'm just going to love this person, that doesn't relieve us from the responsibility to tell them the truth. And so here's it's interesting that these two things, truth and love, are called belts. In the New Testament, he says, put on love above all these things, over all these things, put on love, which does what a belt does. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, and be thankful. When Halloween is over every year, Melissa claps her hands and squeals and gets excited and says, It's the holidays. What does holiday mean? Holy days. Now, we're not Roman Catholic, but we we take that word during this time of the season and we use it, don't we? What is a holy day? A holy day is a day that is set apart. It's different from the other days. And we entered these, what we think of the holiday season. These are weeks and months that are different than the other months. These are set apart days. What if you woke up every day and you decided you would have a day where you were set apart? And what would set you apart is that you would choose not to wear these clothes that everybody else is wearing, but you would put on these clothes. And you would let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You would bind them all together with love and you would be thankful. What a great Thanksgiving season it would be if we were seeking to put on these clothes and then to put on love and to be thankful. This sermon is about to end and we're going to sing one more song and then the formal service will be over. The formal sermon will be over. The formal benediction will be over. And then the real stuff will begin to happen. Conversations, handshakes, hugs, questions, community. It's easy as we sit here and listen to a sermon to think about being compassionate and kind and patient. But whenever the sermon ends and the last song ends and the last amen is said, then we get to work. And we answer the question, am I growing in Christ My desire is to grow in Christ. How do I make it happen? Or how do I yield to let the Spirit make it happen? How do I put these things on? So maybe you can ask each other these questions in the hallway or at lunch. How did this passage today challenge me to live? Where is it revealed things about my heart that need to change? If I'm really chosen, if I'm holy, if I've been set apart by the salvation and grace of Jesus Christ, if I'm really loved by him, then I'm called 
to these things. I'm called to put these on. These clothes, which are the most beautiful. You know, I love this jacket. You know who gave me this jacket? Mrs. Strader. She wrote me, I'm not used to that, being tied to the microphone. Mrs. Strader wrote me a check, and she said, go, go get you a new coat. And so I went to Dillard's in North Richland Hills, and I saw this jacket, and I thought, that is the best-looking sports coat I've ever seen. And, I, and so I bought it. And I love it, and I wear it everywhere I go. I actually just had it cleaned because I wear it everywhere I go. And I, I, uh, I would say, this is a beautiful jacket. But you know what's more beautiful than this jacket? If I woke up and I put on compassion. And I put on kindness. And I put on humility and meekness and patience. We are called to wear these clothes, which are the most beautiful garments in the world. So my challenge to you today is take off those dirty clothes And put on these grace clothes. Let's wear them and show people how wonderful our Christ truly is.